Amen. All right, you guys can be seated. Get my cord together. All right, we're going to be in uh, John chapter 19. And we're almost done with John, y'all. Crazy. I think we started John before the pandemic. We're just plugging on through, man. Plugging on through. All right, so I haven't said this in a while, so I feel the need to remind you that uh, I am a nerd. Y'all remember that? All right, I'm a nerd. And I like to study random stuff. My two favorite subjects, I like I like to study Christianity, right? I'm a pastor. That makes sense. And I like to study history. So you combine them things together. Man, I love. Oh, look at you. Thank you. Helpful. Put those things together. And that's my jam. And so uh, there's this guy who has a funny name. His name is Count Zinzendorf. Count Zinzendorf. Like Count Chocula, but he didn't eat chocolate. Um Count Zinzendorf, he was uh, around in the 1700s. Uh, he was a German noble, meaning he was a rich German dude. He was raised in a Christian family, but he wasn't like especially Christian. He's just like, yeah, my parents are Christian. That's just kind of what we do. Uh, what, what's interesting is by the end of his life, he started something called the Moravian, Moravian Missions Movement. That included a couple of things. One, he used his land holdings and his money to sponsor uh, hundreds of refugees. All right, so he started sponsoring these refugees who were fleeing religious persecution. And not only that, he actually kind of became their pastor. And one of the things that they started to do, they wanted to, to uh, glorify Jesus. And they said, we need to pray more. So what should we do? Uh, let's, let, they wanted to pray four hours a day. So they took shifts an hour each and they prayed 24 hours a day. And that prayer meeting lasted over 100 years. You heard me right. They had a prayer meeting that lasted over 100 years. And from this place of prayer, they began to send missionaries from all, for, to all parts of the world. Now, they're in Germany. This is 1700, so don't think about Christianized uh, North and South America. They sent missionaries to North, South America, Africa, and all these other places. And they, they always did um, works of, of good, too. They would even do stuff that sounds crazy, like they would want to reach uh, uh, enslaved peoples, enslaved African peoples in uh, North and South America. And one of the ways that they would do that so they could get close to them and serve them is that they would sell themselves into slavery so that they could live among people. This is the type of zeal that these people had. And so the question is, how did Count Zinzendorf become this uh, person who started this, this 100-year prayer meeting and this missions movement that, that went to all over the world from just a regular guy who was kind of Christian. You know, when he was when he graduated and he had he took a year off, he did one of these gap year things and he went around traveling Europe and and he went into one particular museum. And as he walked around, he saw this this masterpiece called Behold the Man. It showed Jesus with a crown of thorns on his head. At the bottom of the picture, the artist had written the, the words, this I have done for you. What have you done for me? The question astonished him, and as he thought about it, the, the usual answers came to his mind. He, he loved him, he read the Bible, he prayed, he sang sometimes, but, but somehow those things seemed insignificant compared to all that Jesus Christ had done by suffering and dying. And he said, I will no more, I will not spend my life in idle touring and visiting. I, I have to do something else. And with the artist question before him, he eventually opened his estate, his land to these persecuted Christians, started this 21st 7 prayer movement. 
and started a missions movement that went all over the world. What's interesting is, is he had an experience where he saw this picture of Jesus and it ultimately changed his life. Now, now I want us to be able to not necessarily see a picture of Jesus, but see Jesus by faith. And that ultimately radically change our lives so that we ask ourselves the question, if he has sacrificed for me this much, what can I sacrifice for him? And the scene that, that was depicted in that picture is the scene of the text today. And I want to ask the question, what could have gripped him so strongly that it changed the legacy of his life? My hope that is that as we look at this scripture, our lives, our hearts will be gripped as well. So John 19, verse 1, I'm going to read to 16. It says, then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers also twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and clothed him in a purple robe. And they kept coming up and saying, hell, king of the Jews, and were slapping his face. Pilate went outside again and said, look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know I find no grounds for charging him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to him, "Them here is the man. When the chief priests and the temple servants saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. Pilate responded, take him and crucify him yourself since I found no grounds for charging him. We have a law, the Jews replied to him. And according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was more afraid than ever. He went back into his headquarters and asked Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus did not give an answer. So Pilate said to him, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? You will have no authority over me at all, Jesus answered if it hadn't been given you from above. This is why the one who handed me over to you has greater sin. From that moment, Pilate kept trying to release him. But the Jews shouted, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside. He sat down on the judge's seat in the place called the Stone Pavement, but in Aramaic, Gabbatha. It was a preparation day for the Passover, and it was about noon. Then he took the Jew, then he told the Jews, Here is your king. They shouted, Take him away. Take him away. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Should I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Then he handed him over to be crucified. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I am asking that you would make your word come alive in our hearts. Lord, if there are people who are listening who don't know you, Lord, I pray that you would bring conversion, that you would show them the joy of life in you, all that you have done for them in Christ Jesus. Lord, for those who know you, Lord, I pray that they would be strengthened by your word to remember what you have done, your great love that is that it was written in the scars of Jesus for us. Lord God, I pray that by the Spirit you would speak and that you would enable us to listen and to obey. 
Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the text starts today with Jesus being unjustly beaten and mocked. It says Pilate took him and had him flogged. Now that's, that's a short verse, but, but flogged means that he was beaten severely. All right, so Jesus was beaten severely. Not only that, the, the soldiers decided to mock him, and so they twisted together a crown of thorns. Now, now just think about the intent that is there. The evil intent that is there. They beat him, and they, were, they still wanted to mock him more. They twisted this crown of thorns. They put it on his head, clothed him in a purple robe that represented royalty. They kept saying, hail, king of the Jews, and they were slapping him in the face. Now, remember, we're, we're, we're looking at the trial of Jesus, and we need to understand that Jesus was beaten before there was a verdict. There was no, no, no guilty verdict yet. There was no decision yet. Yet he was beaten anyway. The Son of God was mercilessly and unjustly beaten. Yet the mockery pointed to his identity and the shame of his suffering. See, beloved, he deserved a crown of majesty. Yet he got a crown drenched in his own blood. He deserved to be robed in glory. Yet he wore shame. He deserved to be served, yet he was mocked and slapped. Our redemption is in the scars of his head, the robes of his shame, and the humiliation of his mockery. Listen to this quote from Cyril, an early church father. It says, for if we think correctly... We shall believe that all of Christ's sufferings were for us and on our behalf and that they have power to release and deliver us from all those calamities we have deserved because of our rebellion against God. After they beat him, mocked him, he is presented to the people. And verse 4 says, Pilate went outside again and said to them, look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know I found no grounds for charging him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to him, here is the man. Here's the craziest thing. The judge, the civil judge, is affirming his innocence, which is crazy because he just had him beat, right? That's weird. But he's like, listen, listen, he's innocent. I'm showing you he's innocent. I beat him a little bit. Are you, are you satisfied? Will you, will, you just, will you just chill out a little bit? Will you let him go and do his thing? See, Jesus is presented beaten and bloodied to the people that he can save, and Pilate is expecting them to show pity. He's like, look, look, look at him. Imagine him there, beaten, bloody, the crown of thorns. He's exhausted because he has not slept. Pilate says, look at him, and that word is for us, too. He came into a broken world to save it. He gave up heaven to be on this earth, and he showed kindness and obedience. What, what can you imagine that he would be thinking at this time? Remember, the very people who are shouting crucify are the very people that he came to serve and to save. What could be going through his mind? Keep that in your mind. Look at verse 6. When the chief priests and the temple servants saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. Pilate responded, take him and crucify him yourselves since I find no ground for charging him. We have a law, the Jews replied, and according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was scared. Listen, I want you to understand this. How could they look at this innocent, suffering man and shout out for his murder? 
This is, this is not a man who has, who has a track record of evil. His track record is of good, of helping, of serving, of loving, of teaching, of the goodness and the love of God. And we see from his accusers that there is no pity. They rejected their king and his claims. Crazy enough, they used the law that he wrote against him. They say, we have a law. They're talking about the Old Testament. And we know that Jesus said all of the Old Testament actually testifies to him. So they used the law that they wrote, that he wrote, misinterpreted it, and used it against him. And Pilate sees that something is wrong with the situation. The seeming insanity of the anger. Looking at his innocence and seeing this, this ravenous crowd willing to call for his execution. Now, I want you to, to, to hold this question in, in your head. Who is in charge of this crucifixion? Who is in charge of this crucifixion? Look at verse 9. It says, he went back into the headquarters and asked Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus did not give him an answer. So Pilate said to him, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? You would have no authority over me at all, Jesus answered him, if it hadn't been given you from above. This is why the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. See, in this conversation, we can see that Pilate assumes that he has the most responsibility and the most authority for what happens to Jesus. Yet in the providence of God, the people who called for Jesus to be killed, they are the ones more at fault. It's not simply the one who held the hammer and nailed his feet. It's not simply the one who, who put the crown of thorns on his head. It was the ones who, by their rebellion and sin and hate, it was their fault. The ones who were calling for his death. In the next part, we, we can see something that's interesting, that, that expediency, expediency can be the cause of sin. Look at verse 12. It says, from that moment, Pilate kept trying to release him. But the Jews shouted, if anyone, excuse me, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Now, Pilate was the governor of that area and his boss was the king of the empire, Caesar. Now, history has it that there were a lot of rebellions in that, that area. So Caesar wasn't too excited about the job he was doing. And so the Jews said, listen, if you don't do what we want, we're going to tell on you. You might lose your job. You, you might even lose your life. Now, listen, he is going against what he knows is right. He already knows that Jesus is innocent. He has said it over and over again. He's innocent. He's innocent. Yet Pilate did what he thought was most safe. We need to understand something that often what is safe is sinful. But we often look to what we can get, what gets us the most money, what, what, what gets us the most success, what gets us the most comf comfort. And at times, this conflicts with God's law. Sometimes God's will is us sacrificing that which makes us most immediately happy so that we would have eternal happiness in him. 
in the middle of all these conversations and all these disagreements regarding uh, COVID and, and politics and, and racial tension, I, as I notice people's arguments, as I notice what people are saying, oftentimes the number one concern is what is best for me? What is most expedient for me? What can get me what I want? Sometimes I, that makes us neglect that which is true. It makes us neglect that we should have conviction that what God's word says is what we would stand on and that we should have compassion, that we should love those who are weak and who are oppressed. Often what is safe is sinful. So we have all of these sins coming together, these sins of hate, rebellion, of expediency coming together to crucify Jesus. And finally, he is presented as the suffering king. Look at verse 13. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside. He sat down on the judge's seat in a place called the stone pavement. It was a preparation day for the Passover. It was about noon. And he told the Jews, here is your king. This is crazy that Pilate is sitting in judgment over the judge of the whole universe. This is often how it is, that when we decide to make decisions that are contrary, your will is not sufficient for me, so I will sit in your seat. You just go over there. You can point the finger at Pilate, but we must point the finger at ourselves. Jesus is presented as the suffering king on Passover. Now, Passover was the day that they remembered when, when God passed over their sins when they were in Egypt. I don't, if you might remember the story, uh, God was going to, to have some punishment. And he said, if you are for me, I want you to slaughter a lamb. I want you to put the blood over your doorpost and I will pass over you. You will not have to face judgment. This is crazy that the king of all kings is presented as a sacrificial lamb. We have a king that does not rule by domination, but he rules through service. And here he is presented before us as the suffering savior. And just like Pilate says, we should behold him. At the end of the day, Jesus is crucified because of blasphemy and rebellion. Look at verse 15. It says they shouted, take him away. Take him away. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar, said the chief priests. Here's the craziest thing. Multiple times in the Old Testament, it was very clear who the king of the Jews was. It was God. It was Yahweh. He was their king. And multiple times they had rejected their king. And here was their king, their God who had come in the flesh to reveal himself to them, to show kindness and willingness to forgive uh, sins. And they are rejecting him ultimately in the flesh. They're not just saying some, some trifling words. They are rejecting their true king. See, they committed rebellion. Their allegiance was supposed to be to God. Yet they chose allegiance to Caesar. For honest. There are times that we have committed that as well. See, God is not only the king over the Jews. He is our creator and our creator has claims 
on us. He gives us commands that we should obey and we reject those claims and do what we want. See, you can look at the crowd, think about how horrible they are for rejecting God and rejecting the kindness of God and rejecting the commands of God. You can look at them and point the finger, but you yourself are in that crowd. We are the crowd. The scripture says that we can look at the world and, and there's, there's some sort of, 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 we can look at creation and say, man, somebody made this. And even written on our hearts, there's this idea of right and wrong. Because when you do wrong, oftentimes nobody has to tell you, you feel it in your own heart. Yet God is speaking to us through creation and he speaks to us through our conscience. And nevertheless, we decide to say that might be a good judgment, but mine is better. And so the question is, who crucified Jesus? You remember what Pilate said? The one who handed him over. He has the greater sin. Beloved, we crucified him. We crucified him because of our sin. He was handed over because of our wrong. We can't look at the crowd because of their sin and rebellion. We have to look at ourselves. And we need to, to obey what it says. We need to fix our eyes on the man, that we need to behold the crucified king. We cannot look away from this crucified king. See, when we see the crucified king, when we see Jesus with the crown of thorns in his head, with the blood dripping down, with, with the, the scars in his body, we must see our part in that death. Yet at the same time, when we see this crucified king, we need to see his compassion. I asked you earlier, what would Jesus be thinking in this moment when he is facing crucifixion, the rebellion and the hatred of the crowds? Beloved, when I look at his face, I don't see anger. What I see is compassion. What I see is love. What I see is care. That as the people are waving their fists at him, his heart is stirred with compassion. How do I know this? Because when he was on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. So when you see the crucified king, see your own sin. But when you see the crucified king, See his compassion that he willingly endured this because of our faults. Beloved, if we look to him, we will live. If we look to him, we will find compassion and forgiveness. If we look to him, we will find new life. If we look to him, we will be changed. It's not simply that we see him and feel only guilt, but that we see him and feel his mercy, compassion, and forgiveness when we understand that the Son of God looks on us in our rebellion and has compassion and mercy on us. That changes the heart. So just like Count Zinzendorf, he's going through his life, doing his thing, but he catches a vision of the crucified king who died for him. And he says, I can no longer go as business as usual. If he has given me his life, then I will give him mine. 
that is the only logical conclusion that if we would see the crucified king that has scars that bear our name, we would say, because you have loved us, we in turn will serve you. And so to the one who, who might sin and, and, and not care, they're not burdened by their sin, they don't feel a sense of deep conviction, you need to look at the crucified king and see what your wrong has done to him. To the one who, who might be burdened by sin, who might feel condemned and maybe that you can't look to God, you need to look at the compassion of the crucified one. And to the one who has not experienced change. Like, I don't really, I don't really know him. I don't really have that experience. Beloved, look to Jesus with faith, and he will save you and transform you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much that when you saw us in our sin, that when you saw us in our rebellion, you did not have only anger and frustration but you were moved with deep compassion lord jesus that was compassion that that led you on the path to the cross jesus would you help us to see our own sin to feel the weight of what we have done yet at the same time would you help us to see the crazy bigness of your love, of what you would endure because of your love towards us, of the forgiveness that you give to us, of the change that you make in us. Lord, if there's someone listening who doesn't know you, Lord, I pray that they would run to you, that they would look to you, that they would see their salvation in you, that you would forgive sins, that you would give life and mercy. And Lord, I pray that when we see our sin, when we feel conviction, when we fall and slip, that we would see your eyes of compassion and that we would remember that there's no condemnation in you because you have taken the consequence of every single one of your people's sin. Lord, we love you and we honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.